Welcome to this, the latest in the Future Farm Resilience Fund podcast series coming from NIAB, working in conjunction with AKC and Savills. Our previous podcasts have focused quite heavily on the arable sector, and today it's the turn of the livestock sectors. And uh, joining me for a discussion on this is James Berry uh, from AKC, who's a farming consultant within the team there. So uh, welcome, James. Thank you, Will. Perhaps you just give us a little intro to the sort of main sort of work that you do within AKC. Yes, yeah, certainly. The core focus tends to be led from management figures and accounts, um, predominantly from from estates and mixed enterprise businesses. So yeah, therefore we tend to be engaged with clients, looking at financial KPIs, comparing them year on year, comparing harvest results potentially, and then we're looking at the wider kind of livestock enterprises that complement that. So my role on a day-to-day basis would be looking at some of the more technical aspects, specifically in relation to dairy farms. And we would also look at sort of technical costings and key KPI performance on a regular basis. From that, we would then sort of investigate opportunities with obviously with grant funding and wider policy as well and how that feeds in. So yeah, that, that's our remit and that's that's how our sort of clients predominantly engage with us. So what you're really looking at is this sort of financial productivity of businesses based on their more their technical sort of business um, activities, I suppose then. So yes, yeah, yeah. The, the, as, as the sort of the way that AKC has, has developed over the years um, is to take that financial lead, populate that data and then use that for a management decision. So we do the same within the, the livestock clients and, and the dairy businesses that we work with. So yeah, we're looking at kind of costings on a on a margin basis, either net margin or gross margin at pence per litre uh, per hectare or per livestock unit, uh, depending on the on the system and the type. And then we we work with another company in terms of a group of farmers that we benchmark holistically. So we can sort of track their performance on a two-year sort of rolling basis so that we can sort of track the performance and where their break-even milk price should be, how their inputs are affecting their margins, and also how kind of direct support and other funding also contributes to that as well. A lot of those businesses, they have a dairy focus, but they may have other enterprises complementing that. So we work that all within that technical framework so that ultimately can look at which enterprises are performing and how that translates down into, into profit. Before we sort of go into perhaps some of the work you've been thinking about with the Future Farm Resilience Fund meetings with farmers, what's your perception of actually the state of the livestock industries at, at sectors at the moment? We saw 12 months ago some very high milk prices in particular. There had been periods of quite high lamb and beef prices as well. Um, but obviously cost of production has now, as it has in the arable sector as well, followed through prices have declined. Um, uh, input prices perhaps declined a bit, but not as fast. So margins now being squeezed. Uh, what's the profitability like of typically some of these these livestock sectors, both intensive and extensive? Yes, the, 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 the challenges that we saw um, really since sort of post-COVID with, with the inflation has has impacted across, I would say, all of the livestock sectors, including sort of dairy, beef and sheep. The dairy industry had benefited hugely from a big upturn in commodity prices, sort of 21, 22, particularly those, the most efficient performers resulted in really good returns and they were able to um, get a good return on their capital. Now situation is changing and there's, although there has been some reduction or some kind of consolidation of the inflation, there's the, the prices have come back by sort of 20, 25%. So yeah, those margins are being squeezed. The beef and sheep sectors, uh, particularly again, really over the last sort of three years, um, the, uh, the deadweight prices have been, have been quite reasonable, particularly, you know, and across across the organic sector as well. So there's there's been the potential 
to to make good returns having said that there's never been that opportunity like there was in the dairy sector for that real kind of margin to take place because the inflationary costs have trapped those increases in, in the deadweight prices the lamb sector has had sort of moments within that cycle where they the, the price have been much better and the margins have perhaps been there but that's quickly been mooted by imports of New Zealand lamb, again, in- increases on pressures on other land, alternate land use, and therefore increase yeah. on rents as well as having quite a big effect. And also just access for, you know, large livestock units t- to sort of get a-, a good enough grazing platform to be able to make it make it commercial. Um, mm. So th- those are the key challenges I've seen. So yes, the, um, the dairy sector has probably fared the best through that period. And it's been quite a strain, I think, in the pig and poultry sectors as, as well. Um, poultry being quite a diverse sector in its own from free-range eggs to highly intensive broiler which are very different sort of commercial enterprises but um, um, I think those have been been quite painful in terms of feeding pushing through uh, increased price to retailers has been very challenging feed costs have been extremely challenging and so sectors that perhaps in the past have achieved relatively good returns on capital have um, it's now very expensive to achieve that. And, and it's one of the big challenges actually just funding the working capital now because of the, actually the cost of operating a business is is so much higher. To what extent is that putting pressure on businesses from a cash point of view? Actually, right, right at the moment, it's it's not a big enough factor up the agenda. So it's it's probably second or third on the list because although we've had the rate increases, it's I think those those decisions and those conversations with with lenders and with banks is are probably coming further into the winter. Um, so we're you know we're we're at, we're at the sort of uh, the crest of the wave with that. Still living off the good returns of two years ago, perhaps uh, as, as, yes. as well. Yeah. And, and obviously help, helped by reductions in fertilizer prices and fuel prices in the last six months. Yes. Yeah. 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 So I think I think cash margins are probably on a par with where they have been because of those because of those factors that you just mentioned so yeah but but it it, it will start to buy you know particularly with the re- renewal of new facilities yeah and also the potential returns from from other investments as well which obviously that they will not only inflation but but other factors as well sort of contributing to much better returns so yeah but it, it, at the moment certainly the banks and the banks that we've been in touch with recently are you know still have a very keen an open book for agriculture and and they continue to support the sector so um you know we're not we're not seeing any change in appetite from the banking sector um so you've obviously you you mentioned that's maybe sort of a little bit down the list maybe third uh third or fourth sort of territory so in the businesses you're looking at and perhaps thinking of some of the conversations you have as part of the future farm resilience fund what would you say are the, the top factors that are impacting on businesses now, perhaps the ones that require more, you know, the immediate sort of attention? Yeah, the biggest issue right at the moment is the, the nutrient cycling and management of those, uh, particularly look at the, the, the poultry sector and the, the issues there with offsetting and mitigating phosphates, the utilisation of various different sources of organic matter and, and nitrogen cycling in in uh intensive livestock systems so we're looking a lot at the moment in modeling you know how how some of the new standards within sfi were going to help to mitigate that um, and also private sector funding for how they can help to offset you know some of those some of those issues so it's really looking at how efficient is the business at the moment of doing that and how can we bring in other funding to help make that model more sustainable because in most instances they haven't got the working capital to invest 
in new slurry stores, those sort of things. We're looking at, you know, slurry infrastructure grants at the moment for a few clients. So there's 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 quite big issues there. Um, you're looking at sort of, you know, slurry store kind of replacement costs of north of sort of 100,000 on a 150 cow dairy unit. Well, that's, that's quite an investment where you might need to invest in uh, in lots of areas of the farmyard in the, within the next sort of five years. So again, some difficult sort of decisions and, and what have you for managers in that in that position. Nutrient management and, and, and yeah, combined with the, the working capital and the policy of the farm are the, are the two two biggest issues right now. You've mentioned SFI. Clearly, that's quite topical at the moment with the opening of, of applications within that. Um, what's your um, perception of how valuable that might actually be to some of these businesses? Is it going to help them meet some of these technical challenges around nutrients or is it a bit of a diversion away from what they need to focus on, perhaps, for some of them? Right now, it's looking a lot more attractive than it was 12 months ago. There are, I think now, probably a suite of standards which make managing your farm sustainably practical. <laughs> um, and the revenue is such that it's attractive enough to at least implement those those management practices. Whether that is enough to sustain it beyond those three-year agreements is probably the next challenge for DEFRA and and the industry. The bigger challenge, I think, is that you're sort of looking at landscape recovery and some of the other other options that are available to landowners, but that's multi-tiered. It involves lots of different stakeholders. It's quite involved. So really on an individual SBI basis, it's quite, it is quite limited right now. But the SFI, I think, is a big, a big step forward from what it was 12 months ago, and, and there are some very good standards within there. And hopefully we'll get we'll get much better uptake, perhaps at the 50% uptake of commercial farmers across the country, as opposed to yeah. I think it was 20% under SFI in 2022. So, um, and we're we're certainly pushing that and sort of advocating that for our clients as well at the moment, as well as within the fund. So, so we've got BPS reduced substantially now. Obviously, next year it goes to some sort of lump payment each year scheme because I think this is the last year of doing a BP5 form which yes, is like quite dealing, yeah, I yeah. find it slightly strange the idea of being paid by the RPA without actually filling in a form uh, for them as they claim we won't actually <laughs> need to do but it, that's also been a significant sum of money with remarkably few strings attached in the sense that most of what was in there was legislatively required or is required by some other but customers might have required it. I think the only thing that one of the few things that wasn't was the rules around when you can cut a hedge and that's subject to another consultation at the moment anyway. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So against SFI, which you maybe have to do something uh, to achieve some uh, outcome that aligns with public policy as well. How much is SFI actually going to support these businesses? How much does it fill the gap versus the funding that was there from BPS, which for some of these businesses probably wasn't a massive proportion of turnover anyway? I think, as you say, it varies across sector. The Typically, the dairy farms I deal with, it would probably represent less than 5% of turnover in terms of the historical BPS. So you've got a much lower threshold to um to affect but but the beef sheep and arable sectors are perhaps 20 25 30 percent reliant on that direct support i think looking at where we've modeled at the moment and we've modeled on mixed farms and conventional 100 percent grassland livestock units I, we we think that you know there's potential there for getting sort of 75 80 percent of previous direct support through SFI. So that that is possible if you're looking at techniques with, you know, certainly with herbal lays, with potentially legume fallows, changes to cropping, hedgerow management is a, though that, as you say, it's, there's still issues with consultation, but it, it's quite a step up from stewardship. 
So there are quite good opportunities where farmers can add some good green credentials, but also improve their productivity as well. So there are some good options to do that. And certainly to kind of maintain their P&L on, a, on an annual basis. The issue that's, that I'm sure some farmers and parts of the industry will argue is, is it enough to, to reinvest in that system? And is it truly sustainable? So do you do you think also any of these schemes might actually be, and this is perhaps more pertinent to the dairy sector than it might be with the more extensive systems, particularly where they're sold through markets, but with dairy, obviously the customer is known, which is a novelty in agriculture that you know who your customer is um, <laughs> and you know where your milk is going. Um, and they obviously have stipulations and requirements that, that retailers often add to that as well as part of contracting arrangements. So do you actually, potentially with increased environmental drivers, maybe from retailers and attentionists, does it actually, does do things like SFI actually help meeting some potential retailer requirements as well? Yes, there's quite a long history now of, of footprinting with from dairy processors right through from the key supermarket chains. Um, and that's been going on for 10, 15 years. And they've built ways into their system to improve their CO2 equivalent outputs per litre of milk. So they've, they've improved those indices. But what's happening now is that as new land becomes available, new opportunities become available. You've also got the processor and potentially the say the landowner if they're sort of looking to take on large areas that both require sustainable techniques to, to so you're yeah. sort of looking at applying for whether it's a, a tenancy or a contract farming opportunity based on sustainable credentials so you're not just looking at it to produce as much forage as you can which would have been the historic approach at the highest rent it's about a sustainable rent that will enhance the soil that will give you biodiversity and that will still be a system which works within in 20 years time so yeah. that's the change in attitude and that really just aligns with what the processors and the retailers want what what yep. do you think of the condition of the asset base that livestock units are operating with at the moment we've seen quite a lot of grants that focus on the slurry storage i think there's, there's quite a lot of issues with getting farms maybe fully compliant with the safo regulations uh keeping them up facilities of suitable quality as farms have expanded as well but obviously you get facilities wear down over time and what's the, the investment position for for the dairy sector and other livestock sectors I mean how much of a challenge is that for these for the sectors now? At present I think it goes back to there's almost a two a two-tiered kind of industry where you've got the aligned contracts so that you know it's around about 50 percent of the of the sort of seven and a half thousand dairy farmers that we've got that are on those contracts and the margins are there to invest in all infrastructure and the working capital to maintain where they are and so um, although there's been inflation on the on the materials and the building materials it's sustainable for them to, to invest in those facilities where it's a challenge is perhaps um, the sort of slightly smaller commercial farms so below sort of 200 cows where they're not on any contract which is aligned to any commodity yeah. prices or any any retail price it's exposed completely to the market and so their margins are consequently a lot tighter and on that sort of scale that there just isn't no there just isn't the working capital available to, to sort of invest you, you're probably looking at um, in excess of a hundred thousand for those sort of size units to invest in retrofitting or sort of applying a new slurry store Obviously, there was a there was a big change in tack on the slurry infrastructure grant back earlier in the year, where the, initially it was going to be 100% funded, and now now that's been capped. So we have had clients that have come back and sort of pushed back on that, and 
whether we actually want to go ahead with this or not. So it's a, it's a big decision, and I'm sure there'll be some more dairy farms that exit because of the SAFO regs and because of the, the requirements, which, which they won't deem that, that they will get that return. Um, so again, it, it really comes back to your contract and, and how that's set up and how that sort of affects your ability to reinvest in the system. Yeah, we're, we're sort of coming towards the the end. So probably the last question I'll, I'll put was, what would perhaps be your top tips for focus areas in ensuring sort of resilience of the farm business as we go through this um, transition? I think the best sort of sample I can take from is the farms that we've been involved in with the FFRF since since its inception this year. And all of those businesses, I think they've benefited from basically from having a, a good network, a good team of sort of whether it be professionals on the, on the grounds and and also potentially other farmers and other businesses they collaborate with. So whether it's, uh, you know, whether it's investing in new enterprise, consolidating what you're doing, uh, share farming, so that change management relies on does rely on some collaboration. So I think I think the, the key is, is get a good team around you um, that, that you feel have got the right skills to, to move forward. And that might be something completely different than there's been the traditional farmer's son kind of attitude. It, it could be a business which is um, is heavily involved in natural capital and sort of add, adding value to the land in other ways. So that's a key area. The so other thing is a model of mixed farming, perhaps. <laughs> yes. Yeah, I think I think that a lot of a lot of the farmers that we've seen, a lot of the older farmers sit in glee and talk about how we're all going to go back to the to the uh, to the 1920s, which <laughs> which is great. Um, but I, I do think as well, I think that there is going to be continue to be a, some some really good investment in tech and some and some you know important areas which that that can kind of continue to fuel productivity. Having the right team and the right people around you can help figure out which which things you can affect most in terms of KPI performance. So if the system is limited to by performance by the infrastructure that that is available, then you're better off completely moving away from that enterprise and and sort of looking at looking at other opportunities. But too often than not, a lot of lot of farmers and landowners tend to continue along that treadmill whilst appreciating the asset and they're, they're not achieving any cash margin and that is quite can, can be quite sad to see to reinvest so. with um, no 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 uh, so it's, no. Just, it's just it's capital attrition uh, yes yeah literally it's like down the drain, it's, so. it's slightly the joke isn't it you know winning who wants to be a millionaire keep farming until it's all gone you know what would you do with the, the million pounds if you won it it's that it, we've got to we've got to avoid that and see if we can turn one million into two million really would be a better the strategy we want <laughs> yeah i think yeah that sort of that sort of acumen is, is needed now yeah definitely <laughs> there's this you do need to be um probably a bit more diverse yeah in, in, in thinking and kind of application so yeah yeah definitely Having said that, there are still dairy businesses particularly making a good return on their capital and key traits of those clients that we see, they tend to have a good support network around them to be able to sort of move the business forward. They usually have a set of kind of key values that they're working towards. So that, that could be pedigree status of the, of the cows or it could be the um, the performance, could be the, 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 the technical grazing and forage management, but they have two or three key aspects which they are particularly proud of and are driving towards. It just comes down to the passion and the, and the ability to translate that into business performance which i think that that's what the best dairy farmers are doing so the best dairy farmers are really demonstrating technical acumen from the start and that's what's then leading to good financial performance as well or is am i being a little bit too presumptuous in that no no i think that's a fair assessment because 
because ultimately what's tended to happen is the two-tier approach where you've you've got the aligned contracts is those farmers that have spotted that opportunity and that relationship with that retailer and then they have a contract which is in place which rewards them for being really high technical performance and they can just focus on being very good at technical performance um, and the business model will work as long as they maintain those those areas so they need to be focused on the the key resources they have on the farm and how how that's driving profit they're monitoring that regularly and they've got a really good team of people that they can afford to pay a, a sensible wage to to undertake that on a regular basis and they're continuing to invest in in new technology to be at the forefront of that all the time mm. so it's i'd say it's very much a call the phrase but sort of chicken and egg situation where they they need they've managed sort of to get, to one that level. To get the other yes yeah yeah and and now they're able to benefit from that on an ongoing basis you know whether, whether you adhere to that model because there is an argument that some of the farmers outside of those contracts are they're exposed and but but yes it's uh, and and when we had the big inflation a couple of years ago some of the aligned contracts didn't get up to those sort of levels of, of milk price which there was quite a bit of uproar in the industry about but over a period of sort of five ten years you're likely to get a better than market average price and you're going to be rewarded for all of your credentials as well i think so, i'd but, rather make money every year than make money two years out of five <laughs> yes. yes yeah and that's the reality of it that's the reality of it i think so it's it's just it's just being in that position and there's a reason a lot of those farms where they are there are some good cooperative models out there obviously some well-known ones um which which are working well they have their challenges but they're well first and owned by you know thousands of, of producers across the continent so they some of those are well placed to sort of sort of weather the storm but yes i think really it's it's those aligned places where, where the, certainly the commercial farmers need to be there are some guys involved in sort of obviously niche products direct marketing where you can add value in that regard but that tends to be a very low percentage of milk output so really talking sort of five percent you know uh, less than that it's generally not mass market of consumption in terms no. of super demand so it can't be any more than the niche very yes. easily um yes it's a challenge getting a product listed in a supermarket and getting the shelf space for something so you're and that's where the majority of business is still yes. done and yeah. a changing re i mean uh, uh, perhaps a, i'll stick in a last question actually another last one. the retail landscape has changed quite a bit in the last 10 years there was just at one point a domination of tesco sainsbury's morrison's and, and asda with a little bit of waitrose and mns there's now more of a, the big guys have sort of been pushed down a little bit. You've got a more diverse range of retailers, Aldi, Lidl as well, probably Waitrose perhaps a bit bigger than they were, M&S perhaps a bit more influential than they than, than they were. The challenges around the takeovers of Asda, around the, the, the sort of the changes within Tesco as well. So actually, how much, is that having an impact then on those sort of aligned contracts? That, because volumes will be shifting around as well between between retailers or will have done gradually over time yes yeah yeah the, the, the biggest the biggest impact uh tends to be with those relationships with with the processes at that level because if you go back 10 years ago there was there was the various different processes were selling to different retailers within those aligned contracts and it all got it was <laughs> the, the the waters were quite muddy and it was it was sort of tankers turning up on farm and you weren't sure where that milk was going and where you know what the destination was yes, um uh, so the, I th the supply chain was kind of had its issues i think now there's been more consolidation in the sector and really there's there's 
I think what's happened is that um, those uh, producer numbers have fallen within each retailer's uh, producer group. And therefore, the processing, the, the sort of the marketing of that milk, they're getting a carbon footprint correct for that milk. And the management of that supply chain has been more streamlined. So naturally, those retailers have aligned with one processor and they're constantly keeping those farmers efficient by dropping the, the, the bottom 5-10% off of those off of those producer groups and, and sort of consolidating in that regard. And the processors really have no more power in the chain than the producers in a, in a, in a lot of respects. So they are tied into those contractors and the, and, the, and, and the retailers. There's been no change in the dynamic of the market in that the retailers still rule the roost <laughs> and dictate to the rest of the supply chain. And that hasn't changed for 20, 25 25 years at least um so yeah yeah it's it, it's I, I i think those groups are definitely more efficient but there's no real change in dynamic so yeah so that's sort of where, where they are james thank you very very much i i, I hope uh, listeners no have listening. there will be more podcasts to come there'll be more with a, a livestock focus as well there's a mini series on carbon related topics as elizabeth stockdale is doing and we'll have more on some of the arable topics in uh, future editions. Um, so look forward to uh, the next one.